from New York City. A podcast from working actors, directors, and playwrights. This is the Cry Havoc Company. Hello, and welcome to a very special holiday episode of the Cry Havoc Podcast. This episode is special for three reasons. First, because it is the holidays. Second, because this is our first ever live podcast event. And third, because this live event was recorded in our very own home on 36th Street in Manhattan. In October, after more than 12 years of working together, and thanks in large part to many of the people who are listening to this podcast now, Cry Havoc became one of only 3% of New York theater companies to have a full-time facility of its own. On December 15th, Cry Havoc held an open workshop session in our new home where we invited our audience to join us for an evening of holiday goodies and readings from this year's annual collection of very short holiday plays written for our Gift to Square Foot program, which we'll tell you more about later in the podcast. This year... Twelve of our playwrights wrote new holiday plays for our Here for the Holidays collection. Each playwright was given an assignment. Each play was to be no longer than five pages, to take place during the holiday season, to feature at least one character from a play that the playwright, or with their permission, another playwright in the group, developed in the workshop, and be inspired by a randomly assigned song this year each having the word here in the title. What follows is a live reading of these 12 plays, and please be warned that some contain some not entirely festive language, and each of them is followed by a selection from the song that inspired it and a few words from the playwright about how the play came to be. So sit back and enjoy. Happy holidays from all of us at Cry Havoc, and we will now join the event with the first of our very short holiday plays. So, uh, to kick us off, uh, we will do Puppy Love uh, by Becky Sterling Ring, inspired by the song Love Don't Live Here, performed by Lady Antebellum, and featuring her character Bill McCaffrey from Room 73. Puppy Love by Becky Sterling Ray. Lights up on a living room decorated for Christmas. There is a lit Christmas tree in the back corner. There is a couch and a coffee table with a manila envelope. The room looks empty except for massive amounts of decorations. There are two stockings hanging from the mantle with a B on one and a J on the other. There is a doorway leading off to a bedroom or kitchen. There is a front door with men's shoes scattered around the doormat. Enter Bill McCaffrey through the front door in a hurry with a large wriggling wrapped box with a bow on top. Honey, I'm home! The present nearly flies out of his hands. He juggles it, then sets it on the coffee table. The box moves on the table. Shh, Sparky, be quiet. Don't ruin it, buddy. Babe, you here? I got something for you that just can't wait. And it's not what you're thinking. (laughs) (laughs) Babe! Enter Jennifer McCaffrey from the hallway. She has a winter jacket on. Hi, Bill. You're late. There you are. Bill goes to hug Jennifer. He kisses her hard on the lips. She pulls away forcefully. The box tips over, and a puppy wanders out onto the table. (laughs) No, Spot, no! (laughs) 
<laughs> Merry Christmas, honey. Bill picks up the puppy. Jen meets Spanky, Spanky Jen. Bill? Here's a little boo-boo. Take him, honey. He's yours. Bill, I can't. I only have a few minutes. Where are you going? It's Christmas Eve with a puppy. Hey, puppy, puppy, puppy. Take your coat off, Jay. Stay a while. Bill, I'm leaving. I want a divorce. You can't have a divorce. I got you a puppy. <laughs> he tries to give her the puppy. She won't take it. Bill, you knew I was leaving. Why did you get me a dog? Why did you decorate? It's Christmas. You love these decorations. I, I did them just like you. And you always wanted a puppy. Little Sparky spoke to me at the pet store, didn't, didn't you, little guy? He tries again to give her the puppy. She won't take it. I wanted a puppy five years ago. I wanted a baby three years ago. I haven't decorated for the last two years because you haven't been here. Love doesn't live here anymore, and neither do I. D don't go, Jenny. I'm here. We're here. I'm sorry. I had to work. I always have to work, but it's for you, babe. For our future. What future, Bill? You were never in the present. I want a life now with you. Uh, or I did. Okay. No time like the present. Get it? Present? Christmas? Poochie? He holds the squirming puppy up and she finally takes the dog. I can't take you seriously. She puts the puppy on the floor. I'm sorry. I was playing, lightening the mood. I'm here, Jen. I'm, I am. I'm ready to start on us. Let's do it. Let's make a family now. It's too late. It's not. It's only... I'm only working on one story. And it's a big one, but I, I have time again for you and us. I want to make the time. I have to. I need you, Jennifer. I can't start over again with you. You can. It'll be just like the old days. You know, getting it on in the kitchen. Let's make a baby! <laughs> Don't you think so, pup pup? The puppy sits on the floor, chewing on his Christmas bow. I've met someone else. No, you haven't. <laughs> I have. I love him. He loves me. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's true, Belle. I'm going to go to him now. Okay, who, who is he? Do I know him? No, of course not. It doesn't matter. It matters. He's no one. Don't worry about it. I'm sorry, but I have to go. I brought you food. It's in the fridge. The divorce papers are under that box. Jen, stop. No, I'm going. Merry Christmas. Jen, no, stay. Send the papers to my lawyer. But I have little Buck here. <laughs> he picks up the puppy and holds him out to her again. Bye, Bill. Jennifer leaves. He chases her and yells out the door. I bought you a fucking puppy! He returns and slams the door. Fine. Leave. Bitch! Leave! Merry Christmas! Merry fucking Christmas! Bill puts the puppy on the coffee table and starts to tear down the decorations and throwing them at the door. Love don't live here anymore? It never did, you fucking uptight bitch. You know, you're the one who would never open your legs. Yeah, how can we have a kid if we never fucked? Fuck you, Mrs. Claus. <laughs> the puppy cowers in the corner during Bill's tirade. Bill picks up the papers, looks at them, and sets them back on the table. Fine. 
That's just fine. Bill notices the puppy cowering in the corner. Hey, little guy. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. We don't need her, right? Come here, Rover. Bill picks up the puppy. He walks around, hanging up a few decorations. He hangs up the stockings. It's Christmas, so we're going to have Christmas. Bill keeps walking around the apartment, talking to the puppy. Now, what do we do on Christmas? Bill pops the popcorn, and Jenny picks the movie. Bill and the puppy sit on the couch. So what's it going to be this year, little Jay? I know, I know, it's your favorite. He'll shoot your eye out. <laughs> yes, you will. Yes, you will. Bill turns on the TV. Lights down. End of play. <laughs> So uh, that was inspired by Love Don't Live Here by Lady Antebellum. Here was a little, little bit of that. didn't listen to the song before I wrote the play. Just, <laughs> <laughs> just a little on that. Honesty. I, yeah, honestly. Um, but the, the name inspired me because I guess um, I was really trying to, to create a backstory for Bill, who is part of my moving in play, and uh, try to give him a reason for being so awful in that play. And, um, and so the, the name just kind of inspired me that maybe he had had something that he lost. And so the love don't live here anymore just had to be about a woman or a divorce or something, so it just kind of came out of that name. And then later when I heard the song, I was like, oh my god, it even sounds like Bill. <laughs> I thought it was going to be a woman singing, <laughs> and it wasn't. Did you so, Yeah, which I didn't know who they were. Uh, but yeah, anyway, it was just kind of, it was, it was to uh, humanize Bill a little bit and give him some love in his life. Yeah. All right. That's all. Okay. Thank okay. you, guys. Thank you. Uh, next up, we have Year After Year by uh, Melissa Reiner Sanders, uh, inspired by the song Wish You Were Here, performed by Pink Floyd, uh, and uh, featuring the character Paul from her play Lighthouse and Carol. Uh, year After Year by Melissa Reiner Sanders. We see a living room modestly decorated for Christmas. A one-foot Christmas tree with lights and a star on top sits in the corner. A poinsettia is at the door and various other decorations are scattered. A box of decorations remains half unpacked and to the side. There is a warm, soft glow to the room. Mary, 50s, is beginning to set the table. Paul, also 50s, enters and begins to take off his layers. He holds a shopping bag. The stores weren't near as bad as I thought they'd be, but the shelves were nearly emptied out. Still able to get some milk, but only a pint. That's fine. We won't be having more than that anyway. Paul puts the milk in the fridge, then walks over and kisses Mary on the head as she continues setting the table. 
What are you doing? Setting the table. You know what I mean. I'm just setting the table. Don't do that. Don't do what? Please, Mary, just stop. Would you rather set the table? No, I would rather not set the table. Because you can certainly set the table if you don't want me to set the table. Can we stop saying set the table? <laughs> like, I thought we were past this. Past what? Don't play games. I'm not playing games. You don't see what you're doing? I'm cooking dinner. I've decorated. I'm setting the table. I never asked you to decorate. I would have done that. I wanted to. And now we see how well that worked out. I think it all looks rather nice. Look at what you're doing. What? You're setting the table for three. Mary looks down at the table, takes a moment, and realizes what she did. She sits down, defeated. Shit. This is bad. It'll be fine. How is it going to be fine? I don't do it on purpose. It's... It's muscle memory, and sometimes it's easier to go with it than to fight it. I'm not even thinking. It just comes out. Well, after six years, it still shouldn't get this bad. I didn't realize there was a time limit. There is no time limit, but at some point... At some point what? At some point we have to... I don't know. You don't know. I just want you to be better. But I don't want to forget her, Paul. Being better doesn't mean you forget. It does to you. It does not. It does. Every time I remember her, you get upset. Well, if you told stories or looked at pictures or... This is something else. You've forgotten. I have not. How dare you? You have. You never speak about her. Look, just, I always have to be the one to... Just because I don't go around crying my pain from the rooftops doesn't mean it's not there. Not all of us have to advertise. Some things are private. Private from me. How am I supposed to talk to you? With your words? I can't. I have to be the strong one, because you're always the one who's coming apart at the seams. I am not. I walk in the door, and I never know what to expect. It's not true. Some days are fine, and some days you cry nonstop, and then some days... You've dragged out her tennis racket out of storage and put it in the front door like she's coming home from school. I am doing the best I can. I just... When things are good with you, I don't want to ruin it. You won't ruin it. When I remember her, it's like some part of her is here. It's nice. I don't know if that's... Good or bad for you? You have to stop hiding things from me. I know. You want me to talk about Not the... thoughts. Things. Oh. I found her stocking today. I saw it and I just stared at it and I thought... What am I supposed to do with this? Do I put it up? Do I throw it away? Do I put it back in the box like it doesn't exist? Paul clearly thought it was better to hide it. But now I know it's here. I can't forget I know it's here, and then it just feels like I'm ignoring her if I put it away, like she's no longer part of the family. So I put it aside to figure it out later, and then I see the old Christmas cards. You always hated that I saved them. Said it was pointless, and that this was all junk... Just junk, Janie, would have 
to go through when we pass, so better for us to throw it out now to save her the trouble. Did you find the angel? Where is it? I put it in a box labeled more bows. <laughs> <laughs> but I labeled that box. Well, that's why I knew you wouldn't check there. Paul goes to the box. He knows exactly where it is, though some things have been moved around a bit. He searches. Where are the bows? Why do we need two boxes of bows? <laughs> they were still good. There were four layers of tape on the back, and they were all smooshed down. If you really want, I can go get a whole new bag at the dollar store. It just seems wasteful. Here it is. He finds the box labeled more bows and reverently brings it to the table. He opens the box to find an angel tree topper that has seen many years of use, but has been flattened because of its time in the box. Paul takes it out and hands it to Mary. Mary stares at it and unconsciously begins to fix it up. Remember how she wanted to look just like this angel? They both just stare at it. Let's put it on the tree. Mary nods, rises, and moves towards the tree in the corner. The angel is too big for the small tree, and most of the angel has to lean against the wall to be upright. She takes out a bulb from the string of lights, plugs in the angel, and she glows. Paul and Mary stare at the tree, just far apart from each other so as not to touch. Mary begins to cry. Paul gingerly puts his arm around her shoulders as the lights fade to black. End of play. and was inspired by uh, Wish You Were Here by Pink Floyd. Uh, we'll get to the loud part. Prepare Him Room by Caitlin Wilcox. 
Uh, inspired by the song Tonight I'll Be Staying Here With You, as performed by Bob Dylan, and featuring a char character of Marianne from her play The Pawnbroker. Uh, and this is Jen Reichert and Caitlin Palmer. Let Every Heart Prepare Him Room by Caitlin Wilcox. It is the middle of the night, December 23rd, 1926, Germany. Lights up on a small, drab bedroom with a half-packed suitcase open on the bed. Next to the suitcase, a woman, mid-30s, and a man, mid-20s, are furiously making out. The woman is Marianne Zoff, first wife of playwright Bertolt Brecht. She and Brecht have now been separated for several years. The man is Theo Lingen, a young actor she has been seeing. At last, she comes up for air. I need to finish packing. She takes a deep breath, smooths out her hair and skirt, and rises to resume packing the suitcase. She is tired, and it is late. He sits up reluctantly and crawls to the end of the bed where she is, putting his arms around her and giving her ass a slap. Looks like you're packed perfectly to me. <laughs> she giggles. She giggles. <laughs> You'll wake her. It took me forever to get her down, and I need her well rested for the trip tomorrow. He tries to pull her onto the bed with him, but she resists pulling away. The back and forth continues for a few seconds until he finally succeeds and they tumble on top of one another on the bed, spilling the contents of the suitcase and knocking it to the floor with a clatter in the process. They freeze and expectantly look to the next room. A beat. Nothing. They slowly sit up and she looks at the suitcase. She warily rises and begins picking up and refolding clothes. Honestly, sometimes I feel like I have to mother you too. Darling, don't you think that's a bit inappropriate given our activities a moment ago? She shoots him a look, a beat. He drops his joking tone. I don't want you to go. I don't want to go either, but this is for Hannah. No little girl should have to go through the year she's had. All the moving around and her father and I, the fighting, the accusations. He ignored us for two years, and when I finally want to leave, he acts like I've declared war. But you should have seen her face this morning. I can't even remember the last time he telephoned. I had no idea when he asked to speak to Hannah that we'd wind up invited for Christmas. She was so excited, how could I say no? Honestly, the last thing I want to do is spend a weekend cooped up in a cramped apartment with that man. But he seems to be offering an olive branch. A traditional family Christmas. Yes, yes, her mama, her papa, her papa's several mistresses, and her two illegitimate half-brothers. Theo. <laughs> Do I exaggerate? Where does he plan on hiding the harem while you're there? Or have you suddenly become more amenable to his shared arrangements? I wanted this to be our Christmas together. Theo, I'm sorry to leave you at the last moment. It's not about that. But you'll be fine. You have lots of friends here. I'm sure you'll be a coveted last-minute addition to all the parties. You should thank me. You'll spend Christmas Eve toasting champagne instead of gift-wrapping teddy bears. I don't want to be out drinking champagne. I want to be with you. We've only been together six months. A lovely six months, but we aren't married. I'm not even officially divorced. Things are confusing enough for Hannah right now. And will they be any less confusing for her to wake up on Christmas morning and find Papa's secretary next to him in bed? Dude, do you honestly believe I haven't thought about these things? I've made it clear to him that I won't stand for any of it while we're there, or we're on the first train back to Munster. 
traditional family Christmas. Yes. So perhaps she'll wake up Christmas morning to find Mama next to Papa in bed. Theo. Marianne, it's not as if I'm being unreasonable. You told me yourself what happened in Capri two years ago. He pushes your buttons, says the right thing or makes you laugh and you forget. All the infidelity, all of Hannah's missed birthdays, all the broken promises to send money, it all disappears if he quotes you the right poem. You went there hating him and ended up pregnant. She slaps him. A beat. He crosses to leave. Wait. Theo, I'm so sorry. Please wait. He turns to her but does not move. She goes to him on the verge of tears. You're right. I don't make good choices when I'm with him. As awful as it sounds, it was a blessing in some ways that I lost that baby. I see that now. Things are different. Two years ago, I didn't have you. And now you do. I'm just not sure I'm getting a fair deal. What do you mean? You do have me, Marianne. I love you. But I'm not an idiot. You hold me at arm's length. Stop it. That's not true. I love you too, Theo. Then choose me! It's not just about what I want. Stop hiding behind Hannah. I, I'm a better father to her than he ever was. I, I want us to be a family. You think it's that simple? Snap your fingers? Instant family? God, you really are a child. Stop saying that. I'm 25 years old. I'm no child. You are! Oh, 25. I barely remember 25. <laughs> Do you think I don't hear what everyone says? What's a handsome young man like him doing with an old married lady like her? With a kid to boot. We're ridiculous. I'm ridiculous. For now, you think, I don't know, you think I'm mature or mysterious. Something different than the chorus girls you're used to. But in six more months, a year maybe, if I'm lucky, I won't seem mature and mysterious anymore. I'll just be old and boring. Being a family won't be fun anymore when there are chicken pox and nightmares and early bedtimes and you'll leave. You'll break my heart and you'll break Hannah's heart. Is that really what you think? It's what everyone else thinks. Stop playing house and face it. My God, ease actually made you believe that you don't deserve to be happy. All those things you just said, they're not true. Deep down, you know it. Who brings you your favorite flowers every opening night, hmm? Who knows that Hannah only eats eggs and toast if they look like a smiley face? Who takes her to the park so Mama can have a nap between the matinee and evening show? Who missed you so much when you were away that he walked two miles in the snow to the train station just so he could kiss you as soon as you got here. In case you haven't noticed, I'm not Bert Brecht. I know. Well, thank God. But be honest. Us? We don't make sense. Since we don't make a family. When does making sense make a family? We decide what makes a family. It's not that easy. Why not? Let it be that easy. My parents, my friends, your friends, they all think we're crazy. Fuck them. She is shocked but laughs in spite of herself. He laughs too. A beat. Fuck him. 
I'm done letting him make me feel ashamed. He's the one who should be ashamed. She kisses him deeply. Now, you better finish packing. You don't mind if we go? I don't think I'm worried about him anymore. He had his chance. He blew it. And you're better off, you and Hannah. I've just been waiting for you to realize it. Yes. I'm sorry it took me so long. I'm not always as mature as I seem. <laughs> not to worry, my dear, you'll catch up to me eventually. They laugh and he slaps her ass again as she turns to the suitcase to finish packing. He crosses to the dresser and pulls out a small gift-wrapped package from a drawer. Don't pack too much. Make sure you leave room for this. Theo... It's not Christmas without presents, is it? But we agreed no gifts. The producers are two weeks late with my checks and I didn't get a thing for you. She excitedly takes the present from him and sits on the bed. I know, but I couldn't let my favorite girl lose her faith in Papa Noel. She shakes the present, listening for clues. Hmm, what could it be? Oh. Tearing the wrapping off. <laughs> Darling, it's not actually for you. The present is unwrapped. It is a teddy bear. He shrugs and glances at the next room. They both smile. It's just the one she wanted. You remembered. She puts the teddy bear in the suitcase and holds her hand out to him. He crosses to her and she pulls him down to the bed, kissing him. After a moment, he breaks. You have packing to do. She shakes her head. Hannah and I are spending Christmas with our family. They go back to making out on the bed, kicking the suitcase to the floor. End of play. Uh, that was written by Caitlin Wilcox, who uh, could not be with us this evening. Um, <laughs> but uh, it was based on uh, Bob Dylan tonight. I'll be uh, staying here with you. which uh, Will was not happy about. Um, <laughs> and uh, uh, featuring, this is actually uh, the first of two plays in a row that we're going to do that were inspired by characters not in the plays that the playwright wrote, but actually were inspired by characters that another playwright wrote for them. Um, and so this is actually featuring a character, Cleveland Jackson, from Tim Davis' play, Freak Flag. <laughs> the Quiet Storm 
by William Jackson Harper, a college radio station. Joanne sits at a mic, smoking a cigarette. The producer, Cleveland Jackson, sits in a separate booth, watching her. He takes in every moment. We hear the end of Week by D SWV. Yeah, that was Week by SWV, Sisters with Voices, and they do indeed have voices. Before that, we had I Love Your Smile by Shanice, I Adore Me More by Color Me Bad, and finally by C.C. Peniston. You are listening to KNOX Knox College Radio. It is 12.02 in the a.m., Friday, December the 18th, 24 hours and counting till winter break. And for all you poor saps with the one final tomorrow, my heart goes out to you. It really does. But for the rest of you packing and partying, you know what time it is. She signals to Cleveland, and he presses a button for the thunder sound effect. <laughs> That's right. The quiet storm. <laughs> she signals for Cleveland to cue up the next track. If I Ever Fall in Love by Shy begins to play. I know it's the holiday season, but I ask you, what could possibly be a better gift than them drawers for all you folks out there trying to get a little before he or she transfers next semester? Allow me to aid you in that endeavor. I am DJ Elena Erotica, AKA the Priestess, AKA a nice nin, and this is The Quiet Storm. Thunder cue as the song plays. And we're out. Nice? Of course it was. It's what I do. Feeling modest? <laughs> Maybe a little, but not really. Actually, no. Not at all. No, I'm the shit. So. You sure? I am relatively certain of that. Yes, facts are facts. Uh, thanks for filling in, by the way. No problem. This is... I enjoy this stuff. Yeah? <laughs> Good. She takes out a cigarette, lights it, then pulls out her organic chemistry book, flips to where she was before this most recent break in the music. Cleveland watches. She notices. After a long moment. So, um, what are you doing for the holidays? Te Texas? You're from Texas, right? Yes. You going back, or...? Yeah. You? Well, if I don't finish studying, I might be here still taking the final when y'all come back next semester. For what? Uh, organic chemistry. Yeesh. Yeah. Where are you from again? Uh, Baltimore. Right. Baltimore. Cool. <laughs> no, it ain't. I know. And I know, I know it's not. Sorry. <laughs> you gonna switch the track? Well, the song isn't over yet. Cleveland. This is the quiet storm. We gotta work all the angles here. You shy to get the good girls comfortable? Oh, I love this song! Yeah, baby, me too. And it's so true. I will be sure that the lady is a friend. <laughs> you want to be my friend, girl? <laughs> yes. Thunderclap. Next. A little Jodeci. Forever, my lady. Oh, my God. Fidelity is so hot. Yeah, girl. Fidelity. Thunderclap. Then, on to a little snippet of silk. Freak me, baby. Oh, I feel so aroused by you, strange male I've only met tonight, but also safe. 
safety first. <laughs> By this time, they're looking at each other, all funny. He's waiting for the go-ahead. She's waiting for him to go ahead. Then thunderclap, Boz Skaggs, look what you've done to me. Why Boz Skaggs? So they think about it for a second. <laughs> you gonna switch? Yeah. He does to Jodeci. So... Thunder. Right. He does. Guess you got this whole thing figured out, huh? Quiet storm. <laughs> it ain't rocket science. So, uh, you never answered my question. <laughs> what question? You going home? Well, what else would I do, Cleveland? I don't know. I just didn't want to make assumptions. Well, you're assuming that my home is somehow a safe topic for conversation. Okay. Is it not? <laughs> Shit, I'm sorry. No, don't be sorry. Change the track. What, are you like mad at me now? No. I'm just trying to make conversation here. And I'm here. just trying to study. Change the track. He does. Look. Thunder. He does. The quiet storm. <laughs> Look, I don't know what I said, but regardless of how you feel, I'd hardly say it's gauche to ask if you're going home over break. If there's something I'm something going on, I'm sorry. I hope it works out, but you can't go getting all short with me. I didn't do anything. Well, I guess I should uh, get out of here. I got an early flight tomorrow. Derek's gonna be in any minute, right? Yeah. Well... Okay, then. Cleveland starts to walk out. Cleveland, I'm sorry. I, that wasn't about you, okay? Think, it's just... Things are complicated... there. Family? Yeah. Join the club. Not to be a dick, but we are not in the same club, Cleveland, believe me. Whatever. <laughs> See you in a couple weeks. Yeah, I mean, no, I'm transferring to Rice in the spring. Got waitlisted last year. Spot opened up. Oh. Yeah, so, anyway. I really like you a lot. I know you don't know me from Adam, but I'm leaving and it's safe now. So, to say you haunt my thoughts like a motherfucker would be a gross and profane understatement. When Jason got sick and this lot opened up for tonight, I just had to be in here just to talk to you just once. And if I said something dumb, it would be okay because I'd never see you again anyway, which obviously I did. But just know some random nerd in Illinois really digs you. Like, digs you to the point that he can't think straight. And I'm sure somebody in Baltimore feels the same. And now I shall leave. <laughs> he starts out again. Cleveland. Thanks. You're welcome. Also, Boz Skaggs always puts me in the mood. That may be a little gay. <laughs> a beat. Cleveland to excess. Joanne sits a moment, considers the next song choice. Silk or Boz. She goes with Boz. Hits the thunder effect and says in the mic, 
a quiet storm. She then goes to her wallet, takes out a calling card, goes to the phone and dials. Someone picks up. Hey Derek, it's Joanne, how are you? Yeah. Hey, so I, I know it's late, but is Hannah awake? Yeah. Yeah, no, I know. I, I was just thinking about her and thought it was worth a try, but I, I did want to talk to you. Um, I'm coming back for a few weeks around Christmas, just thought I could come by and see her. Or not. I mean, or not, it's, it's totally up to you, but I'm ready. I'm ready to see her. Is that okay, Derek? Lights out. End of play. That was The Quiet Storm by, uh, by Will Harper, who is not with us because he's off being in a, sh in a show at the public. Um, but uh, this was the song that inspired it. Cleveland uh, from Tim's play, uh, Freak Flag, and this uh, takes place several years before uh, the play takes place, and uh, uh, these two, I believe, end up being married in, by the time the play comes around, so um, he was uh, writing the backstory for himself. So, next up... Uh, we have uh, another uh, actor who uh, wrote a play based on a character written for them. Uh, this is Variation on a Theme uh, by Annalisa Chamberlain, inspired by the song Here Comes the Night by Van Morrison, inspired by the character Sydney from 34 Weeks and 4 Days by Me. <laughs> <laughs> Variation on a Theme by Annalisa Chamberlain. <laughs> Lights up on an ornately furnished sitting room. It is one of the smaller rooms in a very old and grand house. A fresh pine tree stands on one side of the room, decked out in colored lights. Sydney, 24, a tousled little mess of silky hair, dark plaid, and thick stockings, sits motionless on a sofa, a perfectly pensive and gloomy statue. Despite her dismal state, she is quite lovely, if not somewhat frail and worn. Her quiet is disturbed suddenly as Weston, 25, enters through the doorway upstage, grinning and brandishing two festive Christmas goblets. He seems to have stepped out of an L.L. Bean winter catalog, dressed in dark trousers, a slim knit sweater with a crisp ivory collar peeking out over the top, and a smile so bright it should have its own sound effect. And yet, for all his outer appeal, he maintains a comic awkwardness, which is all the more charming. He is good natured to a fault. Aha! Found you. <laughs> There's no hiding from me. He advances to the sofa. Brought you some eggnog. Here. He hands her one of the drinks and flops down next to her on the sofa. Naturally, I've jazzed it up a bit the way holiday drinks ought to be. <laughs> no worries. I was very stealthy about it, although it probably 
Wasn't necessary since everyone's gone home by now. Gertie and Bill and a few people are sitting around in the music room still. But other than that, no one is stirring. Not even a... No? <laughs> Not getting the... Not even a mouse! Yeah, it was the night. Okay. Anyway. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks. They raise their goblets and clink and drink. He settles back against the arm of the sofa, clearly happy to be right where he is, but not sure what to do with himself. You know, I, I really thought I was going to find you in the music room. It was always your favorite room. Uh, not anymore. Have you been avoiding everyone tonight? And more to the point, avoiding me? No, I just needed to be alone. It's been four days now. I know. And six years since I've seen you, Sid. Yeah, I know. And if I'd made it five years and 11 months, instead I would've been here to... I just wanted to lay low in here tonight in my new favorite room because no one else is in it and just be alone. It wasn't my idea to have this party and make like we're all fine and happy, Hallmark, family bullshit. So you're saying I should leave you to your melancholy little self then? Yeah, I guess. I don't think so. I've been patient for four days. I'm afraid I'm going to have to impose on your solitude a little while. He kicks off his shoes and settles more comfortably into the sofa, grinning at her. She shakes his head. He shakes his head as if trying to believe what he's seeing. Now look at you. My Sid's all grown up. Although I'm highly suspicious of you still being the same wild little girl I was always so crazy about. She shifts awkwardly and adjusts the hem of her dress. It's getting dark. Probably shouldn't be in here all alone with me. You're a married man now. Irrelevant. Oh, but it is relevant. Why should you be so concerned? Because you married Sabrina. True. Why did you have to marry Sabrina? She's my worst cousin. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, it's been a long six years. I, we're not that married anymore. Don't, don't, don't worry. We can still have that affair we always joked about. It's a little early for the midlife crisis thing. Well, what the hell? Now, why wait? It was a joke when you were my best friend. And the only guy I wasn't screwing around with in high school. It's not anymore. Not when you're married into my family. But I'm not flesh and blood. Still. You're family now. Well, yeah, I've always been family. I've only known you since we were, what, nine, ten? Wow, that's 15 years. Yep. You're my oldest friend. You know that? I'm sad you don't play piano anymore. You were so good. Oh my god. Wes, that was so long ago. Last time I got on that thing, I think I was 12. No, no. Yes, I couldn't have been much older. It was before my dad remarried, I know, because I quit playing it to punish him when he married that... No, 13. You were 13. I... It was your birthday, remember? Your dad gave you that songbook. It was blue and gold, and it was... Composer with that name that's impossible to say. Rachmaninoff? 
Not hard. Shut up. <laughs> that one. Yeah. And you sat down and you were playing all these beautiful songs right out of the book, as if you'd been playing them for ages. It was amazing. And then, and you pulled out that special song you learned for him, Brahms, the one your mom used to play. When you started to sing it, I'm pretty sure that you and I are the only two people in the world who have ever seen that man weep. I remember. You were wearing yellow. You looked like a sunflower. You have the best memory. He left this house to me. Oh? He did? Mm-hmm. Yesterday, Bill sat down with me and handed over the will and a bunch of other documents. I wish I could remember things the way you do. You remember all the nice things. She bursts into tears. He immediately wraps her in his arms and holds her close, rocking ever so slightly. Presently, she begins to relax into him as the magic of being in his arms takes effect. Wasn't very nice of you to be married when I came home the other day. Wasn't very nice for me either. <laughs> I thought I would never see you again. She gives him a tight squeeze. After a moment. Maybe it's better this way. You'd be the one guy. He inhales deeply as if breathing her in. Come here, chickadee. He leans in to kiss her, but she turns her face away just in time. Don't you dare. He leans in again. Wes, I'm not going to be that person anymore. You've always been the same girl to me, Sid. I know that. But I can't. We shouldn't. They sit for a moment, their foreheads pressed together, still holding each other close, breathing deeply. I can't be here like this with you and not kiss you. Oh, God. He places a gentle kiss on each of her eyelids then her forehead, her nose, her chin, and her nose again. He slides a hand onto the back of her neck, tangling his fingers in her hair. She pushes against his chest, struggling desperately to resist. If we do this, I can't stay. Don't. No, listen to me. If I let you kiss me, it'll be all over and we won't stop. I know we won't. And he'll be another guy I slept with. And like it or not, you are family now. I can't mess that up. Not with you. I already have one failed marriage in this family on my conscience, and that's never going away. If we do this, I won't be able to live in this house. I'd have to leave again. And I don't have anywhere to go. I just have this house, and this room, and my one good memory of him before I ruined his life. Please understand. Please, 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 please. He searches for words and finds none. He is defeated thoroughly. He rises and slowly walks to the door, stops, turns, and looks at her. He smiles a sad smile. Good night, Sid. She pulls herself together in one sharp breath and walks to the door. They stand for a moment, but still no words. She nearly speaks, but stops herself. She takes his hand in hers. They linger for four glorious seconds, and then he swiftly turns and exits. Her hand slides out of his and falls limps at her side. She slumps against the doorway, watching him go. Gradually, the lights begin to seep out of the room until all that is left to illuminate her is the warm glow of the Christmas tree. 
Faint music can be heard emanating from another room in the house. She walks slowly back to the sofa and sits erect, staring into the tree lights. She is completely still as she begins slightly tapping her fingers in time with the music. The song crescendos into its last soaring phrases and softly fades to fini. But she continues playing with her fingers, now tapping furiously in the air and continues the melody in effortless humming tones. Eyes tightly closed, head bobbling, she throws her face down and plays out the final lines of the song with great gusto, striking the final chord into the air, punctuating it with taut, curved fingers and arched eyebrows. She lets out a deep breath and relaxes her arms at her side, gazing into the tree. A calm smile wafts across her face. Blackout. End of play. <laughs> song and then I forgot about all the other requirements until I was <laughs> in the middle of writing it but it was okay because I kind of had started writing her and I figured that she could very easily be Sydney so I just sort of like tweaked some of the backstory to make it you know work and then, and then <laughs> but it, but it ended up you know, being what I wanted to write anyway, so it was perfect. But um, um, just to me, what struck me was the idea of of here comes the night, and and the 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 feel of that phrase to me was kind of like it's such a heavy, heavy thought, and like where where you're at at the end of like whatever that long haul has been, and and for you know whatever someone's been through to be, you know, there's something peaceful and final about, about the idea of just like the night coming in and, um, and just kind of accepting that, but also that it's not a bad thing. And so I just, I don't know, it was more, it's more emotionally sensible than it is. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. That, is how I wrote that. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Okay. Uh, and next up, we have Wish You Were Here, My Love by Sharon E. Cooper, uh, inspired by the song Out Here in the Middle by James McMurtry, uh, and featuring the characters Adelaide and Ms. G from her play A Visit to the Bronx. Uh, and we will have a, a whole bunch of people reading this. Um, Eric Miller, Jer uh, Jersey Gwizdowski, Carrie Flanagan, Caven, uh, Kerry Morris, and Nicole Johnson. Wish You Were Here, My Love, by Sharon E. Cooper. 1950s television music. Gray and white lights offer a space that appears to bring us back to black and white television. A man in his 40s walks through the audience with a suit and a smirk as we hear voiceover 
This is your life, television's most talked about program, and now meet our host, Ralph Edwards. Canned applause erupts throughout the theater. A couple, Walter Kohner and Hannah Block Kohner, sit in the front row. Hannah has proper hair and a proper smile and a party dress that blends into the rest of the room. Well, hello there. Hey. I'll be right back. What? Where are you? Thanks for being with us at El Capitan Theater in Hollywood for this special Christmas edition of This Is Your Life. But the show's getting ready to start. It's going to be great. What is... Well, let's see. Who do we have here? What's your name, young lady? What's that? Uh, Conan. Hannah Conan. Oh, Mrs. Mrs. Walter Coner. Based on this empty seat, I notice that your husband, Hollywood agent Walter Coner, has stepped out. May I sit, dear? He does. Do you know why you're here, Mrs. Coner? Can you can you read what this says? Oh no. Oh, oh no. That is right. This is your life, Hannah Block Coner. Come on up here on the Hazel Bishop stage. Let's give her a round of applause, ladies and gentlemen. Canned applause as she moves to the stage. <laughs> You look like a good American girl just out of college. But so intense is your story that our sponsor, Hazel Bishop, wants to devote full time to it without interruption. Scary music. Bum bum. Bum bum. <laughs> now you relax. We're going across the seas to Czechoslovakia. Music that says we're no longer in America. Pictures of a town. This is your life, Hannah Block Coner. You were born on September 7th, 1919 in Templin, Chernow. The backdrop of your happy childhood mirrors a romantic past. Your young feet did trot on the same path as Beethoven and Goethe. And the winds rushing through the forest echo the majestic strains of a time since past. A perfect place for Max and Herta Block to have two children. You and your brother Gottfried. I went to the same school with Gottfried and Hannah. Mr. Sense was our teacher. You haven't seen him in 15 years. He is now a mechanical engineer in Fin Flan, Manitoba, Canada. His name is now Fran Lynn, but you remember him as Franzi Lebowin. Come on out here. A curtain, <laughs> a curtain opens. Levin appears. Canned applause. They hug. Th this wonderful Franzi! <laughs> we were just talking about you a few days ago. Remember, Mr. Sense, he was so strict. Yes, yes, always punish the students. Even if you were just... Yes, yes. So, Mr. Lemon, who else went to your school? 1950s boy meets girl music. Why, Walter Coner, of course. It was 1934 in spring. We were all dancing at the school dance, and after the dance, her brother, Gottfried, introduced Hannah to his friend, Walter. And after that... She dumped me. Oh, so you were childhood sweethearts. Yes, yes, we were, but we were not meant to be. Music that says school dance. Pictures of Hannah and Walter looking decidedly less fashionable. Hannah wears a plain dress and no makeup. She was still beautiful. And what happened to you and Walter? I went to polytechnical school to become an engineer. Walter went to Vienna to study the theater and later joined the army. Thank you, Mr. Levin, for taking a break from your very busy life and for being a part of Hannah's life. Take a seat, please, in Mrs. Coner's past. We'll bring you back out at the end of the show. He leaves. And what happened to you, Mrs. Coner? I went to school, and then another school, and all of a sudden, the war was there. You did some hotel work, is that right? In a place you've never heard of. Oh, yes, I did the research. Walter became successful in the theater. That's right. You were still planning your wedding. But in October... Ominous music. The synagogue where your wedding would have taken place is burned to the ground. Did you see Hitler's troops travel into your hometown? 
No, I... Ten days later, Walter gets his visa to go to the United States, and you're sent away. Away from your brother and parents to Amsterdam. You are a servant and work in a bookstore. Did Walter keep his promise to you, the one about sending for you? Well, it was so hard because of the quota number. It was three years, actually. Alone and afraid, you give up your dream with Walter Coner. You end up meeting another refugee, Carl Benjamin. You marry him, and on a cold winter night, even that comes to an end when the Gestapo comes into your room in Amsterdam and takes you to a concentration camp. Isn't that right, Mrs. Coner? Yes, yes. That's where I first met Hannah. We spent eight months in that camp, and though it was very tough, it didn't compare with the four camps that followed. That's right. That voice belongs to a girl that went to four concentration camps with you. Fate was kind to her, too, for she now lives in Hollywood. Come on out, Ava Forshy. She does. The women hug. Tell us about those camps. You practically passed your hometown in that trip, didn't you, Mrs. Coder? You could see it from the... It, it wasn't much of a homecoming. We were only there a short time, and then we were sent to the extermination camps in Auschwitz and Poland. It was very cold there. We only had thin little dresses, and ten girls had to share two bugs. You were each given a cake of soap and a towel, right, Mrs. Coder? I don't remember the soap. And you were sent to the showers. Some had liquid gas. You were fortunate. Yours did not. You probably had some wonderful times there, keeping each other company. And you learned... <laughs> And you learned that your brother was also in Auschwitz. But I didn't see him. The, there was a man who, who was a doctor who knew my brother who was also a doctor. They exchanged messages. She was pregnant in Auschwitz. Uh, what was that? I, lear- I said you learned your brother was in Auschwitz, but you never saw each other. And what did you say in those messages? I said she was pregnant in Auschwitz. We didn't know what to say. We were in the same camp, but it was like we were in different countries. We sent... Messages saying hello. You know, families miss each other, whether on Main Street or in Auschwitz. So you were down to 70... So you were down to 73 pounds. Sad music. You made it out alive. Your parents, your husband, and the rest of your family did not. Happy music. V for victory and liberation. Scary music. The nightmare that lasted for seven years came to an end. You know everything, don't you? No, he doesn't. Moving on, your childhood sweetheart, Walter Coner, found you after the war and you were married, fulfilling his promise after all. And now you are safe and happy and content in the country of your adoption, the country that you are loyal to and thankful for. Not everyone is as lucky as you, and you have been saving money to go to Israel to see your brother. That's right. You haven't seen him in ten years. That's true. Well, Mrs. Coner, your wait is over. Yes, that's right. Your mother and father perished, and so did your first husband and the rest of your family. But thanks to TWA... They fly right, and the captain and crew are always a delight. They flew your brother to you right now. Your dreams come true at last. That's right, Mrs. Coner. Now here he is, all the way from Israel, Dr. Gottfried Block. Come on out here with Mr. Walter Coner. The curtain opens. Pause. The brother comes out. He has a mustache and a solemn expression. She wants to cry, but her brother comforts her into showing nothing. Her husband hangs in the background while we hear... Here she is. You've just heard her voice in voiceover. All the way from your future, your only surviving daughter, Jessica Coner. Jessica Coner walks onto the stage, interrupting the play, interrupting the video. The characters freeze, except for Edwards. He continues with the program, though now talking to Jessica instead of Hannah. A new life and a new world. The doctor arranged for an abortion to kill her child and save her life. Did you know that, Mr. Edwards? My mother had eight miscarriages before I was born. When I asked my uncle about the numbers on his arm, he said it was his phone number. 
The United States had just taken her when my father... You rejoice humbly in the bounties America's given you. Everyone was flown here thanks to TWA, experienced TWA flying with the finest. When I was 18, I left for college. I was only gone for three weeks. She sent me notes that said, wish you were here, my love. We've arranged for this special 16 millimeter projector that you can take home of this program so that you and Walter can live this again and again. This is the first time a Holocaust survivor ever shared her story on national television. Not that she had much of a choice. Thanks to the Spiegel catalog. Spiegel, where shopping is easy. And here's a jeweled lipstick so that you will remember this day in this country every time you want to feel beautiful. We played the video every year at Hanukkah. Every time we would show the tape, my mother leave the room and do the dishes. We want to wish everyone a merry, merry Christmas. We hope that this Christmas you'll rejoice in the Lord. I can still picture her with her back to us, just rag in hand. And remember that Mrs. Coner is alive and well thanks to you and to America. Remember to fly TWA this holiday season. Twenty years later, I'm finally really seeing it. Seeing her. This is your life, Hannah Flockhorn. She turns to her mother. We see moments of footage from This Is Your Life. Hannah turns off the video. End of play. Jennifer Reichert, a resident playwright with the Cry Havoc Company. While our live audience takes a break for holiday cookies, I wanted to let you know that the last play you heard 
Wish You Were Here, My Love by Sharon Cooper was inspired by an actual episode of This Is Your Life that aired in 1953. The footage of the original television program is pretty extraordinary, and you can see it at www.archive.org slash details slash this underscore is underscore your underscore life underscore Hannah underscore block underscore Koner. The link will be in the show notes. And speaking of websites, if you would like to support the Cry Havoc Company and its work and get a copy of these very short holiday plays for yourself or a theater lover in your life, go to www.cryhavoccompany.org gift to gift a square foot of Cry Havoc's home. Copies of the holiday plays will continue to be available at this address even after the holiday season has ended. So now we will rejoin the live event, starting with my play, Christmas for New Year's. Next up, we have um, Christmas for New Year's by Jennifer Riker, inspired by the song Here Comes Your Man by Megan Smith, and featuring the characters Andy from her play Mikey Wears Braces and Matt from her play Tex. Uh, and so we're going to have uh, Matt Coward and Sarah Kurtz. Christmas for New Year's by Jennifer Reichert. Lights rise on a snowy Amtrak platform. A small ticket office adorned with colored Christmas lights casts light onto the falling snow. Matt, late 20s, scruffy, wearing a thin coat and hospital scrubs, scrambles quickly onto the platform. Andy? Andy! Matt sprints down the platform, pulling out his phone. He dials, searching the windows of the train as he runs down the platform. Andy, pick up, pick up. No, 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 no. The sounds of the train releasing its brake and pulling out of the station. Matt lurches to a halt. Behind him, Andy, a girl in her 20s, bundled up, drags her wheelie suitcase from the ticket office. Matt? Matt turns and sees her. He runs to her and picks her up in his arms, spinning her around. He stayed. Put me down. Matt sets her down. I thought I missed you when it pulled out. That's the train to Portland. My train isn't for another five minutes. Oh. <laughs> what are you doing here? You're really going to LA? Yes, you got my message. We had plans. You can't just cancel on Christmas plans. We were only going to hang out for a few hours, Matt, and it seemed like you might not be able to anyway. I was talking to Mike, and he asked me to come out for the week. The musician? You haven't seen that guy in years. He's a good friend, and he's free. You're ditching me for that guy? Because he doesn't have a job? You'll be on the train on Christmas Eve. On Christmas. When are you coming back? The third. You'll be there for New Year's. You canceled New Year's. Mike has a gig then. I've missed him, and since I didn't have anything else going on... But you on, did. We had plans for Christmas. We had plans for Thanksgiving, too. And I ate turkey by myself. And you barely asked me to come over for Christmas. That's not plans. That's not true. And you had New Year's Eve. I thought I explained. In a 40-second voicemail this morning... I found out this morning. A backdoor voicemail. I said I was sorry. What's your problem? I bought a dress, Matt. If 
you didn't notice, I don't wear dresses, but I bought a dress. A smokin' back cut down to nothing, black, sparkly, thigh slit dress. But you took an extra shift, jerk. So, wear it to Mike's gig. I wanted to see your face when you saw me in it. You're an asshole. <laughs> it was either New Year's or Christmas. The well, sounds of a train approaching. Andy checks the time. Well, Christmas doesn't have kissing. I, I thought if we were together for New Year's Eve, if I was in that dress, when midnight came, we'd be at that party where we don't know anybody, and you would look at me and say, Happy New Year, and that's when I would kiss you, Matt. And in that dress, you would kiss me right back. If you saw me in that dress, really saw me, not just good old let's watch hockey Andy, but Frickin' sex bomb, Andy, who cannot be denied. <laughs> but you canceled. You canceled it. You were the reason I stayed in this town where everyone else left, Matt, so... Now, I'm going to L.A. I don't know if I'm coming back. The train has pulled into the station, hissing to a stop. Charney said I had to choose Christmas or New Year's. He's my boss and I had to choose. Which day I was gonna spend with you. For me, Christmas is the day you spend with the people you're close to. Or that you wanna be close to. I made reservations three weeks ago for the Duck Inn. I got us tickets for the skating pond. As a surprise, so I hoped this Christmas would be kissing, and now I fucked it up. I, it's all fucked. Matt's beeper goes off. He silences it. How was I supposed to know that? The train whistles. Andy checks the clock. Please stay here with me. You're on shift? Yeah, I stole an ambulance. Matt! <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm not supposed to be here. You need to get back to the hospital. I will. All aboard! <laughs> That's your train. Matt's beeper. <laughs> Matt's beeper goes off. He silences it and shoves. <laughs> and shoves the beeper in his pocket. She looks at him. The sound of the train door is closing, and the hiss of the train releasing its brake. Matt looks at her, just standing there. You stayed. Andy drops her suitcase and pulls him into her arms, holding him tightly. He picks her up and spins her around. How could I go? He sets her down and picks up her suitcase. They walk down the platform, side by side. Do you think they'd mind if I wore a slinky black dress to their Christmas inn? <laughs> <laughs> I don't give a damn if they mind or not. Festive is festive. <laughs> Andy reaches over and takes Matt's hand as they continue off the platform. End of play. <laughs> So that was inspired by Here Comes Your Man, as performed by Megan Smith, which goes something like this.
Where are you? And how did the play happen? Where are you? Where are you? <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know. I, it kind of happened simultaneously between listening to the song and thinking about where it would be set and which characters I was going to use because I have you know, different place to choose from. And I, and I, for some reason, I picked characters from two different plays that I wrote, and I feel like it, it was just like I wanted to see where they were after the, you know, I wanted to like check in on them at some future Christmas from the place that they were in, um, and see what they'd be like together. Um, and then with the song, like I listened to it first, I'm so familiar with the original uh, version at all, so, so I didn't know it was a cover when I listened to it, and uh, it just, it was like images of a train, and, and somebody coming to the train at first, and so I, I picked the setting of somebody waiting for a train, and then I went and I did all the, the research, and I listened to the original, and, and just learned about the song, and talking about California, and stuff, so it was like all this stuff kind of came together, and I, it was just the idea of, uh, you know, somebody is leaving, and what, what do, you, what can you say to make them stay? Because usually, and I really wanted them to work for it. Because usually, when somebody comes to, to meet you, to stop you, that's enough of a gesture to stop it from happening in the movies. Because they showed up at all, um, and I really wanted. It because I originally had it where she was going to leave anyway. So I, I, it worked around to she ended up staying, but I really wanted it to have to <coughs> that. Yeah, she, that they actually did, you know, belong to, together at Christmas. And what, how, how much would they have had to give up for each other to make that a real thing? Alright. Uh, next up, we have uh, Habitual uh, by Kevin Hallman, uh, inspired by the song Everybody's Here, is performed by Brad Paisley, uh, featuring the character Brad from his play Victory. And uh, Allison and Tim and I will uh, read. <laughs> Habitual by Kevin Hallman. A living room decorated for Christmas. A door leads outside. A hallway goes off stage. There's a buffet and a small bar set up on a table. <coughs> Daryl, 42, adjusts a strand of garland. Randy Travis's Oh Holy Night plays almost imperceptibly. The music rises. A feminine voice with a thick Texas accent calls out. Can you hear that, baby? Yep, I can hear it fine. The doorbell rings. Get that, okay? I can't believe people are here already for crying out loud. She trails off. Daryl opens the door to reveal Brad, 37. He wears jeans and a black leather jacket. Oh, shit. <laughs> Merry Christmas. Shit. Hold. I'm sorry. Sorry, bud. It's just... Man, it's crazy to see you. Good, but... Well, this is awful timing. You should have called. I don't have a phone. I do. <laughs> <laughs> Two enters. She is every bit the perfect southern belle. Oh, shit. Honey. I'm sorry. Baby, this is my brother. 
is it? Oh, hello. <laughs> <laughs> I got out ten days ago. Oh, lovely. Uh, welcome to not prison. <laughs> nice to meet you. I don't understand. Is he here for the party? Is he staying? I don't think about a party. What are you doing here? You know, a uh, long time ago you said if I ever needed a place to stay. And uh, with mom and dad gone, uh, you're what I got. When a couple of days went by and I didn't hear anything, just assumed I wouldn't. Well, I'm here now. Offer still good? Of course it is. He has to change. Uh, it's, uh, let's hurry, okay? We're having a party. Some people I work with. It is very important. Business. He has to change now. I know. I know. <laughs> <laughs> is this your music? Yeah. You got a problem with that? Country? Really? <laughs> That's new. Where's a fucking farm? Hey, what's your language, man? <laughs> Sorry, it's, it's, it's a little hard to believe. Uh, this, this place, you and her, uh, and you're listening to country. Yeah, come on. I gotta fix you up. I've heard that before. Good luck. Lead on. The exit down the hallway, leaving Debbie by herself. She grows increasingly tense, waiting as a verse and chorus of Oh Holy Night pass. Daryl enters. Where is he? In our room, getting dressed. You left him alone? Yeah, sure. He's a convicted criminal. Whoa, honey, shh. All right? What? It's true. Well, that doesn't mean you should say it. My jewelry's in there. My purse. He's not going to steal your jewelry. Has he ever stolen before? Well, obviously. <laughs> There's a criminal in my bedroom. <laughs> you know, prison, the way it works, the rules, they say he's paid his debt. And now we have to give him another chance. It's a surprise, sure, but I don't do that for him who will. He's different, I'm sure. That's what going to prison is all about. Rehabilitation. No. And stuff. No, Daryl. Prison is for punishment. And he did what? 14 years out of 27? Parole because the state ran out of money? My grandmother's pearls are in there. The whole set under the sink, just sitting, waiting to be plucked. <laughs> He's in my bedroom. I don't know that he should be in my house. It's my brother. People change. I'm not going in there. People change. I used to... Well, me and Brad, we used to get into trouble together. I know that. We come from the same place. We're, we're not so different, him and me. And look at me now. Look at all the good things in my life. Me and Brad are mostly the same. Except you were never convicted of kidnapping or attempted manslaughter. That's a pretty big difference. Brad has entered wearing a gray suit, the collar of his shirt open. Hi. 
Well now, don't you look handsome? He looks uncomfortable. Turn around, let me see how it fits. No. There's a long pause. The song changes to Garth Brooks's version of the Christmas song. Okay, is that Garth Brooks? Is it? That's not even real country. There are malls that wouldn't play this shit. <laughs> and I wouldn't know. I haven't been to a mall in a long time. Imagine you haven't either. It doesn't matter. Malls don't change. I mean, you know what I mean. It's bullshit music, and I could not say something. I have some integrity. I remember back when... Man, I mean, I let the pants pass. The pants you're wearing, like Dockers or something. Fuck! Yeah, that was real generous of you to... Let that one slide. Could you please turn this music off? I don't, I don't like what it has to say about you. That you listen to this kind of inauthentic middle brow bakery. I mean, I've heard it before. Country music. And I hear it. And I look at you. And this place. And I feel obligated to... I mean, you can't really be into this stuff. Country music. It's bullshit. It's fake. You and your... Country, you're a pair. I'm 42. The music I listen to says nothing about who I am. Because you listen to shitty music? Your taste didn't even taste. It's subpedestrian. You had a lot of time to read in prison, huh? <laughs> Got my associate's degree. That's all in 14 years? <laughs> thought you were more ambitious than that. Now I guess the music's staying on. Yeah, I guess it is. A pause. <laughs> a pause, like a standoff. <laughs> That's awful taste. I bet you watch a lot of TV, too, anesthetize. Sitting there. Still, there is some real nice shit around here. Real nice shit, Daryl. Check it. You live on a cul-de-sac. Congrats. And apparently selling out smells like fresh carpet. Fuck you. The doorbell rings. Fuck you. Fuck. 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 Baby. You have to stop that now. Why don't we all... Take a moment, okay? Okay. <laughs> Better? Brad, you look very handsome. Daryl's suit fits you wonderfully. And we're glad to have you. But this day is very important for your brother, for us, okay? They're business clients. You probably don't know much about that kind of thing. That's okay, but they, it's very important that they feel welcome in our home, okay? Please. Debbie, you know what? <laughs> I'm sorry. I have what's best in mind for Daryl, I promise. Thank you. You're welcome. The doorbell rings. Let me get it, please. I mean, it's the least I can do. 
He walks to the door leading outside, and in turning, we can see for the first time that he has cut out the back of Daryl's suit jacket to make the symbol for anarchy. He opens the door. Welcome, and Merry fucking Christmas! Blackout. Everybody's here uh, by Brad Paisley. Uh, sounds like this. Susie Q, where are you? We're home. Where do you want it? Uh, set it here for a second. I'll move that chair. Paul sets the tree down and holds it as Ted rearranges the furniture, preparing a space. Right here. Paul hoists the tree into the stand as Ted begins to tighten the screws around the trunk. Ted? Susan enters from the door opposite them. Oh, hi, Paul. Nice, Sue. Place looks great. Took Karen and I months to get this settled. Paul crosses to Susan to give her a friendly hug as Ted rotates the tree, searching for its best side. What do you think, hon? Um, I think it's got character. Well, this close to Christmas, character's all we can hope for. Susan <laughs> smiles. It's wonderful. Paul, can I get you a beer or anything? <laughs> no, I, I should run. <laughs> Paul has his 
parents coming tomorrow. Ooh. Have they met Karen yet? Look, don't make me nervous, Sue. I'm a, I'm a wreck as it is. Paul starts out. Uh, you guys have a good holiday. Wish me luck. Good luck. Thanks again, Paul. Beers next week? You bet. Merry Christmas. Paul exits. Ted crosses to Susan and embraces her. Hi, baby. Hi. They kiss. He steps to her side, one arm wrapped around her as they both take another look at the tree. I know it's not exactly what you imagined, but not bad for a first shot, right? Susan is silent. She takes a step away from Ted toward the tree. I screwed up, didn't I? You hate it. I'm sorry. I swear, they all look this bad. No. No, it's fine. I figure we can just fill in the holes with tinsel and lights and crap like that. My sister's pregnant. What? Alicia? Yes. Who's the... Does your mother know? She's the one that told me. What did she say? I mean... Well, what are they going to do? Well, she's going to have it, I guess. Do you think that's the best thing for her to do? It's not up to me. Frankly, at this point, it isn't up to her either. Do you think she'll keep it? Susan looks up at Ted. Not sure. Well, gosh, this is crazy. Are, are you okay? Susan nods. God, what do I say? I mean... When I see them, you don't say congratulations, right? Can I just pretend I don't know? I want to offer to adopt it. Sue. That is an amazing gesture. But do you think that's a good idea right now? I mean, I know we talked about doing this in the future, but I... I don't know. I guess I really thought we were talking about... The future. I know. Me too. I mean, I'm not sure if that's really financially a viable option. I know. The timing is off, but Ted, it's not like the baby would be moving in tomorrow. I mean, this is still months ahead. Well, if it's months ahead, do you, we have to be deciding this right now? Can we just, you know, hang in there for a while and see if when the time comes it feels right? I don't want to risk it. Risk what? The chance that she may do something rash. Do you think she might do that? I certainly didn't think she would get pregnant. I, I don't know what she might do. Well, maybe there is something someone can do or say to prevent her. I don't know. Can't your mother make sure of that? That she doesn't do anything? Why is this such a problem for you? It's not like we never discussed this before. Yes, yes, but for the future, this is... I just wonder if we would be any better position right now to raise a child than Alicia would. Wait a minute. I won't deny it may be challenging, but we aren't in high school. There's a big difference between our ability and Alicia's. We are completely capable of raising a child as we are right now. I just don't know if this is the right time. How will you know when it is right? I'll know. I will... We'll know when we're more settled and we have more money and, and when we feel like it's time for us to settle into more of a, you know, family lifestyle. I mean, we have the luxury to be able to make those choices and 
We have plenty of time to make them. I just don't see why we should be burdening ourselves with the responsibilities of your sister's pregnancy. It's her problem, not ours. What if it was ours? What do you mean? What if it was our problem? If I were pregnant, would we, would we be having the same argument? Or would we just accept the fact that maybe our plans would have to change a little? I really don't think that we should take the conversation down this road. Maybe instead of exploring impossible hypotheticals, we should acknowledge the realities here. I mean, don't you think that there might be a few complications in adopting your sister's child? What if she wants to give it up? Or, Christ, what if she wants it back later? You're being dramatic. People have open adoptions all the time. Something like 60% of domestic adoptions these days are open. And the baby would be in the family. Alicia would still be able to have a close relationship with it if she chose to. I think you're oversimplifying things, but... And you're oversimplifying what the process of adopting a child would be. I mean, how can you be sure we would get one? How can you be sure that this isn't our one shot? Would you at least acknowledge that? A beat. Susan crosses to the couch and sits. This is the closest I can ever come to having my own child. I wish you could see that. I don't think I could stand to see that baby go to someone else. A beat. Ted joins her on the couch. Susie. I know you've had some misgivings, but... We've gone over this. Just because you can't see how someone could give their child away doesn't mean you should feel any guilt about adopting. There are plenty of children out there that need good homes. And when the time comes when we can actually provide that, that's when I think we should seriously consider it. Well, I'm asking you to consider it now. As wrong as this may seem to you right now, I can't help but see it as a perfect opportunity. And knowing what my doubts have been, I'm surprised you can't see how this is different. This is right. I know this is right for me. I really hoped you would feel it is right for us, no matter how wrong the timing seems. I know it seems right. Please do this for me. Long pause. Susan, dejected, lets her eyes drift away from Ted's. The silence lingers another moment. <clears throat> well, now I wish I didn't buy you that espresso machine for Christmas, because this is really going to steal its thunder. <laughs> <laughs> Susan turns to look at Ted. They both smile. He wraps his arms around her and gently kisses her. They look back toward the tree. Blackout. End of play. Inspired by uh, this cover of Here Comes the Sun.
Um, this is based on a character. I'm pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> Did you drink Jenny Spear? <laughs> This Earth You Created by Sydney Painter, um, inspired by the song I Am Here to Worship and performed by Passion, uh, and featuring the character Piper from her play The Spaceship Lands on Christmas. Uh, and we have Jenny Carolyn and Amy Nowak. The Earth You Created by Sydney Painter. Super nice video, but in the end, if you can show Jesus resurrected, that's really show how is truly Jesus Christ. BTW, in the future, can I see your video as singspration or sharing? Carrie, 1130. <laughs> uh, Lexi's Room, magazines, girl stuff. Also a Bible, some trendy Jesus decor. And your family is totally fine with this? They'll get over it. They understand that this is really important to me. You're not going to miss them, like on Christmas? My parents aren't cool like yours. I'd rather be with the church group. You're going to be here for the party, though, right? I'm not leaving until the 22nd. Good. It's, it's shaping up to be kind of huge. Last year's was pretty epic. I know. We can top it. I'm really glad you're coming. Everyone is. Yeah, I guess I haven't been around much. What are you guys going to do out there? You know, listen and share, discuss the scripture. I'm really going to learn a lot. i got to catch up. Well, as a, uh, a damned soul, I also... <laughs> I, always, I always thought Christmas break was a nice time to be with my family and, you know, not learn. Piper, you really need to stop judging things you don't understand. I don't proselytize you all the time saying you're going to go to hell and shit, so you can spare me the lecture. I wasn't going to lecture you. It's just weird. None of our friends are, you know, re religious. Well, a lot of our friends make really uninformed choices. Okay. So, <laughs> what's it like? What? Believing? No, no. <laughs> like, what? what's the church like? Are there other kids there? Like... Totally. Themselves? The teen division is like the biggest one. A lot of kids' parents don't know they go. 
I really want to like hang out with them outside of church. It's just so much easier. Kids at school are like drama. Like the guys are just so easy to talk to and it's just better because you know they're not gonna try anything, you know. Uh-huh. It's just way better. So that's part of the deal, like you're whatever abstinent? Oh yeah, that's a huge part of it. We're all saving ourselves. I still get to save myself because rape doesn't count. It wasn't a choice I made, it happened to me. Right, of course. <laughs> that's why I feel so much safer around these boys. Like it's been really hard to be comfortable around boys, you know, since what happened with Tanner. I just don't feel safe. Lexi? Uh... Do you ever think about telling someone about what happened with Tanner? Like who? All of our friends know. Like, you know, an, an adult or someone who could help? Oh, uh, yeah. Well, the church has been really supportive. They've been so great for me. And, like, remember when I had that creepy stalker? I remember you telling me about that, yeah. Like that, too. They just really make me feel supported. Just, like, helping me understand that it's not my fault. Like, it could have happened to anybody. Well, not anybody. What do you mean? Nothing. No, I want to know what did you mean by that. Okay, well, nothing. Just... Tanner was your boyfriend. So it's okay. No, I didn't say that. I just mean he didn't, like, grab you off the street at random. It wasn't going to be just anybody. It was going to be, you know... Whatever. Never mind. Forget it. Whatever. Piper, I get the feeling you're not 100% supportive of this church thing. No! <laughs> I guess I'm not. Well, why not? I'm really happy there. I just feel like they're encouraging you to, you know, I don't know, dwell. Because they give me a safe place to vent about my problems? It sounds like they give you a safe place to embellish your problems. I can't go to your party. But you just said... I'm going to be here, but I can't go. Think about it, genius. I can't be going to your solstice party. What would Jesus say about that? Oh, come on. It's just an excuse for a party. It's not that serious. It's paganism, Piper, and it is very serious. It's just fun. You know none of us take the Wiccan thing seriously anymore. I really want you to be there. I don't ask you to compromise on what you believe in. You do, I can't kind go. Of. Okay. <laughs> what? Nothing. I don't demand that you love Jesus. You'll find him when you're ready. <laughs> I know. You've been very accommodating to us heathen folk. <laughs> Piper, don't make a joke out of this. Everyone has their own path to Jesus, and it can be really hard when you don't know why you feel so lost. I know what it's like to live in that false life, but you'll find your way out of it. Lexi, the irony right now is really out of control. <laughs> I know, I know sometimes sarcasm is easier. That Wiccan thing was just the wrong path to be on, and now that I know that, you can't ask me to validate those lies. But they, uh, they used to be your lies, too. But I guess you have new ones. The teachings of Jesus are not lies. You'll see that someday. I'm not talking about your Jesus bullshit. I'm talking about your other bullshit. I don't know what you're talking about, but I think you better drop it. Uh, you make things up. 
You always have. When people aren't impressed enough with the actual story, you just keep adding things. Everyone knows this. This is a known thing Everyone about who? you. But this church thing, I don't know if they're like enabling you or whatever, but it has gotten a lot worse. Some of these things you say, it's not cute anymore. These things could hurt people. People are going to get hurt. I don't know what you're getting at, Piper. I got hurt. I can't worry about everyone else, too. Okay, I'm just going to say, because someone should, I don't think Tanner raped you. I was talking to him, and because he's a teenage boy, the conversation happened to turn to all the sex you guys never had. And I thought that was weird, because you said he bragged about it after, you know, whatever happened, happened. And he has no idea why you broke up with him, or that you're saying all these awful things about him. And you always have a reason why, why, why you never did anything about it. You just bring it up all the time to us, like for attention. I'm so, so sorry if I'm wrong, but that's what I think. How can you say that? And I don't think you really had a stalker. Mm -hmm. You can never show us any of the notes because you got scared and threw them away. Piper, stop! And I would that never. Time that you said. Piper, I don't lie about things like this. You said that you were cutting. You had a problem with cutting and you wore long sleeves for like two weeks. <laughs> and sunglasses. Because like cutters are extra sensitive to light. Whatever. I don't, I don't, I don't think that was true either. So basically you think I lie about everything. There were never any scars after. I mean, not even like a mark. And more importantly, if you're a real cutter, you try to hide it. You don't tell everyone you've ever met. I mean, maybe you were, like, giving yourself a paper cut here and there just to make it feel true, but I don't think you were, like, a cutter, cutter, cutter. Okay, so why are you friends with me if you think nothing I say is true? I don't fucking know. Okay, then maybe you should leave. <laughs> maybe you should leave. Whatever. I don't think everything you say is a lie, just some of the bad things that happen to you. It's, it's like you want things to be worse than they are. Like you wish bad things on yourself so hard that you say it out loud. Only maybe it's easier to lie and say these things did happen than to admit that you want them to. You think I wanted to get raped? Huh. No, I... Okay, yeah, I guess, yeah, I think you want to have been raped. Some part of you wants that. You're so sick. I am? You can go now. Lexi, you're gonna have to clean this mess up. I somewhere. said, get the fuck out of my room. Okay, fine. You're on your own, I'm done. She goes. Piper! You're going to hell, you know. End of play.
So last year I got that like awesome spaceship and this year I got that. Um, so you know, I listened to it, and the okay. So the link that you sent me to my song was a link to a YouTube like uh, remix, if you will, of Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ set to this song. It was like a bunch of shots of like that, uh, you know, that film um, cut together, like all the grossest. <laughs> strewn around his feet, mindlessly sipping a mug of hot chocolate while watching Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer on TV, an open and half-eaten blue tin of Danish cookies in front of him on the coffee table. On the wall hangs a lone stocking. A scrubby, foot-tall evergreen festooned with too many Christmas lights sits on the end table next to him. A knock on the door. Slightly puzzled, Ted goes to the door. He opens it, revealing Cassie, a pretty, if decidedly unexceptional girl in her early 20s. It's hard to tell if the redness of her cheeks is from tears or the wind or both. Ted could not be more surprised to see her. Cassie? Ted. A long, uncomfortable pause. Ted looks at her. Cassie can't, can't quite look at him. Finally. 
I'm sorry. I shouldn't No. Come in, please. Ted steps out of the doorway. Cassie steps inside. Ted scampers to the couch, muting the television and stuffing his wet socks inside his boots, then placing them neatly under the coffee table. Behind him, Cassie removes her snow-topped hat, unwinds her long scarf, and unzips her heavy coat, revealing a large, pregnant belly. She slides out of her coat as Ted turns around, seeing her unzipped for the first time. He stops cold. He looks from her belly up to Cassie's eyes. She gives him an awkward, shrugging grin. Can I get you, um, I have cocoa, or here. Offering the tin of cookies. They have the, the little pretzel kind, I know you. I'm all right, thanks. They look at each other in the glow of the television, Cassie hovering by the door. Ted gestures for Cassie to sit. She makes her way to the couch and sits. He sits next to her on the far end of the two-seat sofa. A long moment, then. How's Mark? Gone. Where? I don't know. West, he said. There's a lot of west. Yeah. We went to the doctor. I took one look at the sonogram and said, that doesn't look a goddamn thing like me, Cass. How do I even know it's mine? <laughs> right there in front of the technician, he said that. And then he dropped me off, wished me a Merry Christmas, and a Happy New Year. And he left. Maybe he's coming back. I don't think so. Cassie reaches into her pocket and pulls out a neatly creased sheet of paper. She offers it out to Ted. He unfolds the sonogram. It's a girl. Cassie's smile melts away to tears. She turns and studiedly watches the muted television. Ted studies the sonogram, then Cassie. A long silence, then... Is it? It's his, Ted. Okay. Ted turns to the television. The silence of the room is heavy as they both watch the flickering light of the television for a long, long time. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have come here. Cassie hastily rises and shambles her way towards her snowy coat. I just didn't know where else to go. She grabs her scarf and begins winding it around her neck. Wait. No, I should go. Sit. I have something for you. A present. Ted heads into his bedroom. Cassie stays where she is. Ted can be heard rummaging in the other room. He emerges with a small box wrapped in colorful but well-worn balloon wrapping paper. He offers it out to her. How did you know? It was for your birthday. Before. Cassie looks at him a moment, then turns her attention to the box. She tears away the paper and opens the box. She looks inside, then up to Ted. He can always come here. Ted takes a breath and walks to the couch. He sits, watching the silent television. Cassie reaches into the little box and lifts out a key. She looks at Ted a moment, then walks around the couch, unwinding her scarf as she does. She sits next to him. He picks up the remote from the cushion next to them and unmutes the television. The sounds of Rudolph, Santa, and Burl Ives fill the silence between them. 
Cassie lays her head on Ted's shoulder, and they watch together as the lights fade to black. End of play. So that was inspired by uh, Here For You by Neil Young. So in terms of uh, where that came from, um, there was sort of a bunch of things. I mean, it started from that lyric uh, about um, when your summer days have come and gone and you find yourself alone, you can come back and be with me. So I was thinking if it takes place at the holidays, what happened in the summer days? And so kind of figuring back, I figured a pregnancy might be an interesting thing um, that they were working from. And we had actually fairly recently done a reading of Makes Three with Cassie, and um, Makes Three takes place several years later. This is the pregnancy uh, with Julie, who's the child who's died uh, when they come back um, to find, uh, when Mark and, and, uh, and Joe come back to find her. Um, and so uh, what I kind of wanted to do with the song was write a story where the, the last moment of it felt like that song, but to try to make them work towards it. Um, and then I also, on top of it, kind of piled on a bunch of additional assignments for myself, just because it was a, you know, an experiment. So one of the things is I want to try to tell the whole story uh, in less than two pages, um, and to do as much of it without dialogue and with behavior as possible. Um, and I wanted to take as many of the lines in the play from other plays that I've written, which actually most of the lines in the play actually come from another play. Um, and get a little bit of biblical imagery in there. Um, and, uh, and, and, and also, I think probably the, the highlight of my year this year was being able uh, to have and give keys to this place. Um, so I wanted to have that sort of central imagery. And uh, so that's kind of where, uh, where that all came. short holiday screenplay by Jenny Curlin, uh, inspired by the song What Am I Doing Here With You by Bev Harrell, and featuring the characters Plume and Dovey from her as-yet-untitled animated pigeon screenplay. Um, For Plume, a short screenplay by Jenny Curlin. Interior, Museum of Natural History, Evening. A dark exhibit hall in the Museum of Natural History. Dimly lit display cases line the perimeter of the room casting shafts of light onto the overly polished black tiled floor. At the far end, one of the display cases grows a little bit brighter. Inside that case, 
Plume, a plump pigeon wearing a Santa hat, sleeps tucked into his nest behind a plaque that reads Birds of North America. Entwined in the nest is a single strand of Christmas lights. To his right is a stuffed belted kingfisher. To his left, a stuffed seaside sparrow. And under his wing is Dovey, a beautifully colored ornate fruit dove. Dovey's eyes are wide, and she stares at the pile of gifts under a giant branch decorated in tinfoil. The gifts are each perfectly wrapped in folded museum brochures, with images from the giraffe and whale exhibits facing out. They are all labeled Dovey. Dovey looks up at Plume, who is sound asleep, and then through the glass pane to the entrance of the exhibit where an industrial metal clock reads 11.15. She looks back at him and pokes his chest a little with her beak and waits. She nudges him again, this time a little harder. Nothing. Eyes glued on Plume, Dovey slowly ducks her head out from under his wing hold and steps backwards out of the nest and hops over to the pile of gifts. In its shadow sits a lone package wrapped in a discarded Frito-Lays bag labeled For Plume. Dovey looks back at Plume. Cut to Exterior, Museum of Natural History, Evening. In the darkness, an old abandoned mail slot at the back of the museum. A few pieces of trash whip around in the wind. Dubby's head juts out of the slot. She looks quickly back and forth and wriggles the rest of the way out and bolts up over the trees. Exterior, New York City, evening. The Time Warner building in Columbus Circle. The massive towers of the building loom dark over the brightly lit trees lining the intersection. A ten-foot-tall holiday wreath hangs on the glass facade, Perched on the inside of the green pine ring, a row of sleeping pigeons. Dovey dives past the pigeons, down to the revolving door at the entrance. Taped to the door is a white sign that reads, Closing at 10 p.m. on Christmas Eve. Dovey bobs her head, looking up and down the street frantically. The street is empty except for a horse carriage trotting away from Central Park, and a man and a woman walking towards her, holding hands. Dovey's eyes land on the white shopping bag slung over each of their shoulders. Dovey jets down Central Park South, the trees whizzing by off to her left, and in front of her, a giant 32-foot glass cube with glowing white apple on its facade. <laughs> Interior, the Apple Store, evening. Dovey walks across an iPad screen trying to get it to respond. Nothing. She starts pecking at it with her beak. Nothing. She looks up at a sh the shaggy back of the head of a teenage boy, an aisle over, entranced at a screen three times the size of his head. The boy is looking at his Facebook page. In the top left corner of the screen is a photo of him and a girl in a Rudolph sweater, standing in front of a Christmas tree. The girl is holding a golden retriever puppy with a giant red bow up to the camera. Dovey cocks her head woefully, looking at the happy couple. Dovey's eyes scan up to a red and green banner flashing across the top of the screen. Macy's Department Store, open till midnight during the holidays. Then, behind her... Out! Out! Dovey turns and sees a blue-shirted genius, her body flung over a row of iPhones, flailing her arms in Dovey's direction. Dovey, startled, flies up and dashes around the perimeter of the store, frantically trying to find the exit. When the entire store watches her with their mouth agape, Three-quarters of the way around, she spots the spiral staircase and makes a beeline up the stairs. Exterior, Apple Store, evening. 
Dovey races out the glass exit and over the empty fountain wells and lands on a light on the intersection, her heart racing. She looks over at the clock in the plaza. It reads 11.45. She zooms off. Exterior, New York City, evening. Dovey cruises down Fifth Avenue. On either side, store after store is gated up tight. Below, a late, uh, late stragglers run up the steps to St. Patrick's Cathedral. Off to her right, a gap in the buildings revealed the brightly lit Rockefeller Center Christmas tree. Dovey's vision clouds as she quickly wipes her eyes clear with her wing and speeds up. Exterior, Macy's department store, evening. Dovey hugs the side of the building, avoiding the stomping feet that are quickly exiting the giant glass doors. Red hanging bags stuffed full, of, full and swinging low beside them. The door swings open again and a giant arm in, black, in a black sports coat holds it open for a little old woman walking slowly out. As soon as the woman passes, Dovey hops inside. Interior, Macy's department store, evening. Dovey stands in the middle of a long red carpet running up the aisle. She breathes deep. Giant red bows and pine branches, each decorated with giant bells and tiny white lights, line the ceiling as far as you can see. Men and women pass back and forth around her and then quickly disappear in a sea of racks. Sparkling balls and stars catch her eye in every direction, her head darting back and forth. Just then, an announcement bellows. Macy's will be closing in ten minutes. Thank you for shopping and happy holidays. Dovey bobs her head looking around, her focus shifting from one sign to another atop the counter displays and racks. Off to her right, a sign reads, Watch him open his favorite gift next to a revolving tower of watches. A man with a smile puts on a watch, shakes his wrist satisfactorily, and then takes it off and carries it out of view. Dovey hops over to the revolving tower and perches on one of the watch faces. She bends down and unsecures a black leather watch from its display, and it falls and hits the counter with a clatter. She dumps down and lays her wing over the, over the band, trying mightily with the other wing and beak to clasp it. After a moment, she stops, unsuccessful. She looks down again and uses her beak to slide off one of the leather loops off the band. She wriggles it over her wing. Perfect fit. Dovey soars over a cleaning woman, vacuuming the carpet around the fitting rooms. At the entrance of the fitting rooms, a sign reads, What his neck deserves, next to a bin lined with neat rows of neckties. <coughs> Dovey bobs her head, looking around. Around the column, she spots a gift wrap station. She zips towards it. Dovey bites off a piece of thick red and white striped ribbon. She wraps it around her neck, leaving some extra slack, and ties a Windsor knot. <laughs> Montage. Dovey stands looking up at a sign that reads, Every man deserves a hat. Dovey zips off. Dovey zips through the baby socks and booties in the infant section. She picks a small blue sock and tugs it onto her head. The extra fabric flops down to the back of her neck. A sign reads, Even grown men like toys amidst rows of gadgets and electronics. Dovey zips off. Dovey tugs at an olive green monkey off a Kipling backpack. A sign reads, Give him warm for the holidays, next to a collection of cashmere scarves. Moments later, tucked in the corner of the children's section, Dovey grabs a toddler-sized <coughs> necktie with blue fishes. A sign reads, Make him smell like Christmas, next to a floor-to-ceiling shelving unit lined with cologne. Dovey, the child's tie now wrapped scarf-like around her neck, fills a discarded water bottle cap with Aspen by Cody cologne for men and balances it upright between her feet. Interior, Macy's department store, evening. 
Dovey a watch loop around a wing, booty on her head, ribbon and fish tie wrapped around her neck, an olive green monkey dangling from her beak, and a bottle cap balanced tight between her feet, coast carefully down the old escalator shaft, going down and down. At the second level, Dovey notices, Dovey notices a sign just inside the entrance to the floor. On the placard, a photograph of a Currier and Ives perfect family gathered around a tree on Christmas morning. The children are playing with, newly, with a newly opened doll and train car, respectively. The father is sitting in a blue armchair. The mother leans over, handing him his present. Underneath, did you get your man what he really wants for Christmas? Dovey looks down and sadly surveys the bundle of gifts she's collected and lets out a muffled squeak. She looks back at the placard and the beaming man looking down at his favorite perfect present. Exterior, Macy's department store, evening. Dovey flies out of the store and the, gates and the glass door closed behind her with a loud thud and the lock of a deadbolt. She coasts heavily across Herald Square and lands on the rim of a black trash receptacle. She lets the bottle cap slip from her feet, unwraps the tie-in ribbon from her neck, takes the baby booty off her head and the monkey out of her beak, and tosses them all in. She looks down. She stops. She sees something. Her eyes sparkle. Cut to interior, Museum of Natural History, early the next morning. Plume's eyes open. He smacks his beak a few times and looks under his wing where Dovey is nestled up close to him, eyes closed. He pecks the top of her head, and as he does, something catches his eye. He stops, beak agape. He lifts his wing from around Dovey and starts shaking with excitement. Dovey. <laughs> Dovey. <laughs> Dovey's eyes open and Plume beams at her. It's exactly what I wanted. Underneath the tinfoil decorated branch, piled high at the base of the gifts labeled Dovey, is a mountain of pizza crusts. <laughs> Cut to exterior New York City that same early morning. A black trash receptacle thinly dusted with snow. Inside, the sun bounces off a metal ring attached to an olive green monkey. Around it, a discarded ribbon, watch loop, plastic bottle cap, fish tie, and baby booty at the base of the receptacle. Pull back to reveal, the trash receptacle is sitting outside Sparrow's Pizza. Light snow falls at a steady pace, and a neon sign, uh, and the neon sign casts a warm red and green light across the white <laughs> dusting already building up on the cars and mailboxes lining the street. Happy people, dressed in holiday garb, slide their feet back and forth on the sidewalk outside, making tracks and catching snowflakes on their tongues. Interior, Museum of Natural History, early morning. Plume jumps out of his nest and tears off to the pile of crusts. Dubby watches as he excitedly paces back and forth, thoroughly investigating the pile. Dubby calls from her nest. Hey, Plume. Plume looks back. Merry Christmas. <laughs> Plume shortles. Terrible. <laughs> Dubby jumps up and joins Plume. Together they start to peck away at the crusts, tossing the pieces in the air and throwing it back into their beaks. Pull back to reveal Plume and Dubby at the front corner of a large display case behind a glass pane full of posed stuffed birds. A giant branch covers, covered in tinfoil catches the light in the ceiling and a single strand of Christmas lights grows bright 
a stark comparison to the dim displays lining the perimeter of the exhibit. In the bright case, Plume and Dubby bounce happily up and down together amidst a pile of crusts and presents and holiday cheer. Fade to black. Inspired by uh, What Am I Doing Here With You by Bev Harrell. This is Jenny Curlin, and you just heard my Holiday Pigeon screenplay for Plume. Thank you so much for joining us for this special holiday podcast. Again, if you would like to get a copy of this collection of 12 very short holiday plays for yourself or for someone you love, visit www.cryhavoccompany.org backslash gift and gift a square foot of Cry Havoc's new home. Thanks again to everyone so much for joining us. A new season of the Cry Havoc podcast will begin after the new year. If you have not done so already, please subscribe for free on iTunes to join us again for our regular discussions about the craft of acting, writing, and directing, and about the realities of being a working artist in New York City. You can also go to iTunes to check out all of our previous episodes. To learn more about the Cry Havoc Company, visit www.cryhavoccompany.org. So, for myself, Jenny Curlin, Jen Reichert, Melissa Briner-Sanders, Annalisa Chamberlain, Will Clark, Sharon Cooper, Matt Cowart, Sarah Curtis, Allison Crane, Tim Davis, Kerry Flanagan, Jersey Gwizdowski, Kevin Hallman, William Jackson Harper, Nicole Johnson, Eric Miller, Kerry Morris, Becky Sterling, Caitlin Wilcox, and everyone at the Cry Havoc Company. Happy holidays, and we'll talk to you soon. Cry Havoc Company at cryhavoccompany.org. 
questions or comments can be sent to podcasts at cryhavitcompany.org. All music from this show came from the Podsafe Music Network at music.podshow.com. Thanks for listening and please subscribe.